You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Well, we're now further into this cycle of the stories of the matriarchs and patriarchs of Israel. After last Sunday's story, dealing with how Isaac and Rebekah's marriage began, we move quite quickly into the story of the birth and then the youth of their twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Between last week's story and tonight's, though, a couple of quite significant things have taken place that are skipped past by the lectionary. First of all, we're told that widowed after the death of Sarah, Abraham has remarried to a woman named Keturah. Together, Abraham and Keturah have six sons. Now remember, It was an heir that Abraham and Sarah had waited for, prayed for, pleaded for, and then waited for some more. That son was born long after hope had been lost, and so he's named Isaac, laughter, in remembrance of how both Abraham and Sarah had laughed at the absurdity of it all. And now, without any apparent difficulty whatsoever, Abraham has fathered six more sons, with Keturah. Well, these six sons are presented as the fathers of the semi-nomadic peoples of the Transjordan region and Arabian Peninsula. While the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son by the servant woman Hagar, those are said to be peoples of those same general regions. This is why, of course, Islam also traces its deepest roots to these stories because the peoples that founded Islam also stand in this Abrahamic line. Yes, chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 5, notes Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Yet, the text also goes on to say that Abraham gave gifts to these other sons, while he was still living, and he commissioned them to go eastward to establish communities for their peoples to become nations. Here, Walter Brueggemann notes, quote, the text provides a striking presentation of the tension between election to promise and a generosity which embraces all peoples. Yes, The descendants of Abraham and Sarah through Isaac and Rebekah are presented as the chosen, the covenant people, but not in a way that is meant to be ungenerous, unmerciful, or unloving toward the others. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs remarks in his own reflection on this text, which he says is a text that speaks to the most radical of monotheism's truths. He says, God may choose, but God does not reject. The logic of scarcity 
alpha males and chosen sons has no place in a world made by a God whose tender mercies are on all his works. Now, that's a really important theological point to keep in view, and one that's illustrated quite poignantly just a few verses later, before our reading tonight begins. Genesis says, Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. Abraham is buried by his sons Isaac and Ishmael together. Now, one might have assumed, given the nature of the stories, one might have assumed resentment, estrangement, hostility between the two, and maybe there had been some. One might have assumed that Hagar would have taken Ishmael far, far away from the home of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. Yet here Ishmael is, side by side with his half-brother Isaac, together burying their father right beside the body of Isaac's mother, Sarah. The two are able to set aside their differences, except that any tension Ishmael might have felt over Isaac's apparent election could not negate God's generosity, which embraced them both, which embraces all. Together they can do right by their father, bury his body in the place he had so carefully selected, and simply let things be. This is a remarkable prologue to the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers, twins in this case, whose story and rivalry is terribly complex. The story tonight begins with a bit of genealogy, and then this. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived The children struggled together within her. Barrenness is a recurring theme in these stories, as are surprising births. There are twins in her womb. The movement of those twins makes Rebecca almost impossibly uncomfortable. So she, she cries out to God. She prays about this, and she's given a word. A word that points to all that will follow in the conflict between these twins. And then this. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Oh, such different personalities echoing those of Cain and Abel from the very, very early chapters of Genesis. And then the text says, Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob 
dramatic foreshadowing if there ever was some. Not only the differences between the two sons in their foundational personalities, but the potential for real conflict for their parents. In our text, the incident is described in just a handful of verses. As famished Esau comes from hunting, begs stew from Jacob, Jacob gives it to him, but only on the condition that Esau sells his birthright, trades away his status as the firstborn twin. It's so compact, but I'd like to read to you now how Frederick Beekner, the novelist and theologian, how Beekner imagines this scene in his remarkable novel, The Son of Laughter, a novel that covers this whole cycle of stories. Now, this imaginative way of retelling the stories is something that the writer Reynolds Price once described as a serious way of wondering. And in many respects, it's not unlike the way the rabbinical tradition engages ancient texts. I'm going to pick up here at the point that finds Jacob out tending the flocks, while Esau has been ranging the area in search of wild game. Listen. This is the voice of Jacob first. For dinner, Rebecca had sent me off with a pot of red beans, which she had boiled up thick with mutton fat and sesame. I had a fire going and was warming them over it, and then suddenly I found Esau looming over me. He had a thick black goatskin thrown over his shoulders. His game bag hung empty from his girdle. I was squatting on my heels by the fire. He was looking down at me with his brow furrowed. I'll give you anything you want for that, he said. He pointed at the beans. That lovely, mushy stuff, he said. I smelled it from the other side of the hill. It smelled so good. I haven't had a bite since this morning. I said, you'll give me what? Now, at this point, over the course of a couple of pages, Bichner describes how Esau offers first his prized throwing stick, his hunting stick, and then his knife, and then even a servant girl. No, no, no. He would have to think of something else. And here the novel picks up again. What Esau thought of was to pull me at once to my feet and hug me till I thought my bones would snap. Oh, I'll love you forever. I'll love you to death. And for only what's left in your dear little bowl, he said. Esau covered me with kisses, my face, my neck, my shoulders, I could not help returning his embraces. Even in the womb we had hugged, battled. He rolled his eyes at the beans. He groaned. I said, you'll give me anything. Anything, everything, he said. And the smile broadened till it cracked his face in two. The furrowed bloodshot stare above the big square teeth below. And soon, as Beekner describes it, 
Jacob is having Esau swear away his birthright. My seed, not your seed, I said. Your seed, Esau said. Father in first. Father. Twice everything. Twice, he said. Everything. I swear it. So be it, I said. Take and eat then. And he took it. He squatted by the fire with the bowl on his knees, but he did not immediately eat it. He raised the bowl to sniff it with his eyes shut. He scooped some beans on the flat of his thumb and touched them with the end of his tongue. Then he put them into his mouth and sucked his thumb, turning it this way and that way between his lips. Then a whole fistful, then another, each time sucking all five fingers like teats. He winked at me. When he was finished, he embraced me kissed me. That is how Jacob got what Jacob wanted, and Esau got what Esau wanted. As to which of them got the better of the bargain, who can say? See, at that point, Beekner is pointing toward the fierce storm. Jacob is busily pulling down on his own sorry head. This conning of his brother out of his birthright might not have actually been taken entirely seriously by Esau, but Jacob certainly believed it should be. And a bit further into the story, Rebekah will conspire with Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob, remember? She'll conspire in another con, this time pulling a fast one on Isaac himself deceiving him into giving Esau's blessing to Jacob. But, oh, that just causes further division. It sends Esau into such a rage that Jacob has to flee for his life. He has to go for many, many years. It's a life that will get more and more complicated as Jacob gets himself into deeper and deeper binds. We shall watch that unfold over the coming weeks. But now, this. This portion of the story speaks to one of the grand themes of the whole Genesis cycle, and well beyond. God so often chooses the unlikely, the one born out of order, the one who seems precisely the wrong person for the job. That's true, of course, of Abraham and Sarah, too old to have children, yet they would have children. It's certainly true of Jacob in all of his complexity. But later it will be true of the Moabite woman Ruth, who becomes the grandmother to King David, and of David, the youngest son in his family and a shepherd boy at that, yet he is the one who's anointed. It's true of all those hesitant and reluctant prophets like Amos and Jeremiah who protest they don't have the words, they're too young, they shouldn't be called to do this. It's, of course, a keystone principle in the New Testament. From the moment that young Mary is called to bear the child who will be called the Son of the Most High, it extends through Peter, that enthusiastic yet always faltering disciple, 
Thomas the doubter, Saul the relentless persecutor of the Jesus movement, who, as Paul, becomes its greatest proponent. Time and time and time again, it is the last and the least and the lost and the unlikely who will feel the Spirit's tap on their shoulder. It's still true. You say, who, me? Yes, you. Why not you? Don't tell me that your life is more complicated, your failings more profound, your weakness and your blind spots deeper than those of Jacob. Oh, no, of course they're not. And the deeper we read into the story, we will see just how flawed he is. And yet, so be ready for that tap on the shoulder, however subtle and gentle it might be. Be ready for the Spirit's call, for God calls us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.